now, everybody. Quiet, listen to me. We're going to start a show. Now, some of you people have been with me before. You know it's going to be a tough grind. You're going to dance until your feet fall off. You're not able to stand up any longer. But we're going to have a show. today is Ron Welliver, and Ron just wrote a book titled First Bruno, Now This, which describes what it was like growing up with his immediate family in, in Hyde Park section of Boston in the 1960s and the 1970s. I want to start out this conversation by disclosing that Ron and I were in the same graduating class at Boston Technical High School back in the 1970s, although we've only seen each other once or twice since that time. And Ron is a retired law enforcement officer for 31 years and he's a veteran of two Boston marathons, and at the age of 57, his passion for hiking was born, and he completed all 48 of the New York, uh, New Hampshire, rather, 400-foot mountains a few years later. And for over 20 years, he volunteered as a middle school and high school football coach, and he and his wife, Susan, raised their family in the southern New Hampshire area, where he currently owns a small landscaping business. Ron, how are you? Thanks for having me, Jim. How are you? Fine. I'm great. Um... So this book, I read this book, and for me, parts of it were painful because there's a lot of similarity between what you put in this book and a lot of us uh, experienced back then. Um, our parents were probably the same age, going through the same things they were, and uh, a lot of pain in this book. So where did it come from? Well, over the years, um, back when my brother was a teenager, he went through the normal teenage problems. Yeah, he went out drinking once in a while, took some drugs. But um, it just continued into his 20s. And it continued into his 30s. And I saw what it was doing to my mother. And um, the, I was a little brother, five years younger. And I ended up being the big brother, trying to counsel him. And it was just, it was just no good. It was continually visiting him in jail, getting out of jail. He never did anything wrong. And um, it, one, I've vent to my friends over the years of things that he's done, and they would say, "You got to write this down. You got to write a book." So years ago, back in the '80s, I started making little notes about all the incidents he's done, and some of it is really bizarre. And uh, his way of life is different from a functional way of life. The way the rest of us, we grow up, we stop our bad habits, we maybe we raise a family. We get a career. He never had that. He spun his wheel like a hamster, and right to the day he died in, in his late 60s. And um, after he passed away, I looked at all my notes, and I started writing paragraph after paragraph, one a night. The story started coming out, and um, I was surprised that it was only 96 or 100 pages because I felt like I wrote for like six or seven months. And then all the editing and re-editing and uh, interviewing with uh, our old friends from Hyde Park. And some of them didn't want to bring up the painful history with my brother. They wouldn't return phone calls, pretty much hung up on me. Really? I kept that at the best I could. And I interviewed, I tried to get at least two people to confirm some of the facts in the book that actually happened. The book is 90% fact, 10% embellishment, if you will. You said you were, you were his caretaker throughout that time. Always look, looking out, not only do you have to look out for yourself, but you had to look out for your older brother. Yeah, I was a, he would always call me when he got in trouble with the police because I was a policeman up here in New Hampshire. 
And um, sometimes my mother wouldn't tell me all the trouble he's in. She left me out of it. And uh, he, he drove her nuts right to the end. And then when she passed away in 05, and um, it's funny, that's how the name of the book came about, because and make a long story longer, Bruno is a dog. Now, my brother loved animals. And when Bruno was alive, he was staggering around his apartment. He was 19 years old. Like, you got to put the dog down, Hardy. He's suffering. He drug it. Look at him. He bounced back. So when Hardy went to jail in 05 in an incident that I describe in the book, um, his girlfriend had to put the dog down. She's got three, four kids. And she called my mother, and she goes, she goes do what you have to do. So when Bruno died, he was devastated. So in 2005, when our mother died, um, it's kind of suddenly, she had some medical issues. I had to go to MCI Bill Ricca and tell him. Mm -hmm. And when I got to MCI Bill Ricca, when he came in the room, he goes, this must be something. And I said, yeah, Adi, mom's gone. And the first words out of his mouth, first Bruno, now this. Right. And I said, you know what, if I write a book, that's going to be the name of it. Because in his mind, he didn't mean anything against our mother. In his mind, the death is on the same level. Right. I mean, everybody is in love with our pets, with our dogs. But to compare it with our, with our mother, who's a godsend, right. Right. some people would have a problem with it. I knew he didn't mean anything by that. Thus, the name of the book. Right. Um, you said she pretty much enabled him throughout his whole life. Yes, she, she did. Enabler. Admittedly, she was. Yes. Yeah. And my father had a severe drinking problem going into the late 70s. And she went to Al-Anon, got help, got tough with him, threw him out on his sorry ass. And um, she was better for it. But she couldn't do that with my brother. He lived with her until he was 52 years old, living at home, not paying a bill. She's doing, covering all his expenses. And the rest, he'd get his drug money by stealing. And uh, I explain in the book how some of his thefts were excessive and way excessive until he gets caught. He keeps going until he gets caught. Right. Never learned his lesson. What what line of work was your dad in? My dad was a car salesman, a car mechanic. Then he was a salesman. And it's it's funny you should bring that up, Jim. Is um, when my father became a salesman, I was ten years old, and he never went to another one of my baseball games or my football games. But when we played Boston English in 1973, I graduated in the year was 74. You and I. And English was our only win. And I'll never forget, coming in at halftime, tied at 6-6, six to six, I looked up and I saw him sitting in the stands. I could not believe it. Right. I came out at halftime and I was on, on the tip of my toes. I played the best half of football I've ever played. It was Division One. I wasn't that good. We had Mark Demas, thank God, to carry our team. But I played the best half I did all year long. And I found out later that he left at halftime never saw me play. Oh, wow. <laughs> never saw me score the touchdown, never saw me you know, throw for 100 yards, and, uh, and I was devastated. And uh, I never saw much of him after that until uh, he passed away a few years later. Well, that's the way parents were back then. Uh, my father only went to one of my high school games um, at the, at the uh, Boston Arena, so pretty much the same, yep. same thing. Um, so you... Your father's drinking seemed to be at the root of this. Was was it a family legacy for him? Uh, did he have it across different family members? In cross. That's a, that's a very good question, Jim. Um, 
if, if I had known what I was going to write years ago, I would have asked so many questions. Right. I have so many questions I have no answers to. And I remember my grandfather, which was my father's father. The only thing I remember about him is he died when I was very young, like three or four years old. Is he, was, he was never nice to me like my other grandfather was. And I heard he was a bookie and into gambling and all that. But that's rumor. My father's brother, um, he was very similar to my father, but he, I, never, I never saw him take a drink. And uh, when we visited him in Florida, he had his face on the TV. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. Oh, look, Ronnie's here. He turned around and say hello right back to the TV. I go, that's my father, but he's sober. Yeah, and that's just the way that family was, my father's side. And um, I didn't know much about his, uh, my aunt, uh, Dottie from the Cape. I never got to know them very well. We'd visit her occasionally. So why his drinking took off the way it did, went from, you know, six-pack of beers to 12-pack to 20, then the hot stuff comes. And when the hot stuff came, that was the beginning and end of his life. <laughs> Brown liquor. Brown liquor. Brown liquor. Does it brown liquor? That's what I call it. Um, so, uh, yeah, that kind of very similar to uh, what I experienced. I, my father and his brother, um, my uncle, his only brother, only sibling, had cirrhosis. And um, you see, going back, not his side, but my actually my mother's side, there were she had older brothers. Um, that had drinking problems, and then uncles that had drinking problems, and uh, it was, I think it was just a sign of the times. Um, money around, not a lot of job opportunities, and beer was probably twenty-five cents a glass, and uh, maybe even less. Uh, and the few books that I've sold, I'm getting phone calls and emails from people that I barely knew, and um, they're saying, like, oh, my God, this brought back so many memories of my family. And we never talked about it. We never. And um, people are coming forward to me. One of my brother's old friends called. We talked for 45 minutes. I haven't talked to him in 40 years. And um, he said, I'm sorry, I never get out of that realm. He goes, I had a problem. And I've been sober 37 years. And I was I was very happy for him, flabbergasted. And he just let it all hang out. And um when I wrote this book, I felt like a, a piano has been lifted on my back. I, I just let it all out. And my friends that I grew up with, my good friends, some from Tech, some from High Park High, a lot of them from High Park, they had no idea. Because when my father, well, he committed suicide, but when my father died, I didn't admit that to anybody for years because I was embarrassed. There's nothing to be embarrassed about, Jim, because it, it's not our fault, and I didn't do anything wrong. Right, and, exactly. But you think you could have saved him? As an adult, I had to learn, I grew into that. Right. Um, did he do it at home? Well, he wasn't living at home at the time because oh, she okay. threw him out in an apartment in High Park, High Park, High Park Avenue. Let me ask you: uh, Did you ever go to like an Al-Anon class? Al-Anon? Me? Yes. No, I did not. You did. I, I studied it pretty much on my own. Once I started realizing there's something missing in my life. Yeah. And I started reading about adult children of alcoholics yeah. and um, the weaknesses you have. And you can turn them into positives. Right. One of my positive things is um, is I let, I'll ask somebody and let them talk about um, what, what they went through and make them realize it's not their fault. And it's okay. 
We have to talk about that stuff because it eats you alive. Right, right. Um, okay, back to Adi, the one man party. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what? Tell me about his exploits with his friend uh, Mick Walsh. What's this? What was that all about? Well, I'm not sure if you knew Mick. Mick was a mailman in Salty. And um, yes, and uh, I thought we should mention his name, but he is gone, and I, I don't know his family. But I remember talking to him years ago, and um, but not knowing. My brother went to jail several times, five to eight years, because of his dealings with Mick. What exactly he did? Theft of the mail, credit, like involved credit cards, it involved whatever they got their hands on, and it's South Boston, so. At one time, the car got shot up in front of my house, but was it a warning or was it over a girl? And he was involved with these people. And one thing I don't write in the book, and I should mention, Jim, is um, I, my brother never paid a bill. Never. So why would he want to get stolen credit cards? And he's worried about bills coming in. If, back then, the credit card came in the mail. You activated it. You just cashed it out. He never paid a bill. But one time. I didn't talk about this in the book because I thought about it afterwards. This guy comes to the door in a suit on. His shoulders were connected to his ears. The guy was a human refrigerator. And he come in the door, and my mother goes, can I help you? He goes, are you there? He comes down, his eyes widen up, and the guy says, you owe somebody some money. Oh, yeah. Now, usually I just, he went right to the back porch in a hidden little area on our back porch, Came out with a wad of twenty to fifty dollar bills. Handed it to the guy. The guy said, "Thank you." No receipt, no nothing. And my mother says, "You better stop whatever the hell you're doing." And I'll never forget that statement. She said it more than once. She said it in the book once too. That's the only bill I know we ever paid. Yeah, they're not very forgiving. And he was—you said he was in the military, but for a short while. <laughs> yes, he was. And I—I I don't mean to laugh at that. I feel like I have the right to laugh or be a little sarcastic in my book because I've lived through it, and that's how I've dealt with it. But he went in the Marine Corps and with a friend of his, and I remember him writing me a letter, and he says, I was in high school at the time, probably our sophomore year, maybe freshman year. He said, whatever you do when you get out of high school, don't join the Marine Corps. And uh, I remember, wow, I guess he doesn't like the exercise. I kind of like the exercise. I was an athlete at the time. A struggling athlete, if you will, and um, within five weeks, he's home. <laughs> and what he did was, and I'll mention it because it's in the book, is um, he picked a fight with the DI, and, and they back then they beat the hell out of you. Mm. I mean, if you didn't get up on time or you were late, I mean, they they would think twice about. It. But after I um, somebody read the book, I found out what really happened, and. Um, a friend of his called me up and says, oh, you're probably embarrassed. You didn't want to know the real reason how we got out of the Marine Corps. Because they gave him an honorable discharge because he had a hole in his ear from the beating. And my brother's friend told me, he goes, uh, you'd be embarrassed. I go, I'm not embarrassed. Tell me. I already interviewed you. You didn't tell me this. He goes, he wrote me a letter and told me what he did. He took a sharp number two pencil and he stuck it in his ear and popped his own eardrum. And then he went and picked a fight with the DI, the drill instructor. The drill instructor beat the hell out of him. He went to the infirmary, and they said, Sazen, you beat him up so bad. And they, they said, look, we'll give you an honorable discharge if you just leave. And he goes, done. 
And that's how we got out of the Marine Corps with an honorable discharge. And how long was he in there? Well, five weeks. Okay. <laughs> you just can't make this up, Jim. This is, this, that's my brother. That must have hurt like, a, like hell, sticking the pen, pencil in your ear and piercing your But ear. he came home. Painkillers, jumping in the polluted Neponset River with his friends with an affected ear. I mean, he didn't care. And meanwhile, his other friends are in the jungles of Vietnam. Yeah. So, you get out of high school, you go to Salem State. And um, did you go up there to play sports specifically? Or... As a matter of fact, I did. And um, I, I should mention a thing before I went to Salem State. Uh, the coach got a hold of me, and uh, Jim O'Day got a hold of him. And Bob Mazzoni, who graduated here before us, was a pitcher at Salem State. And he goes, yeah, come up here. You know, I think you, you can probably stop based on what we have here. So um, I was doing all the paperwork for financial aid, and I was a little overwhelmed. I needed some adult to help me. And I'll never forget, my Mark Namus's um, father-in-law, future father-in-law, Dick Pansiaki. Excuse me, Dick Pansiaco. He goes, are you having trouble with Salem State? I go, yeah, I'm trying to get my paperwork in so I can get in on time. He called up and pretended to be my father. And I'll never forget that. And you go, this is Mr. Oliver. What's going on with my son's paperwork? He's supposed to get in there. He's got baseball tryouts in the fall. And the paperwork went, right, yes, Mr. Oliver, we'll take care of it right away. And I, he hung up the phone, and I remember going out in the car and saying, why can't my father do that? Why, why do I have to someone pretend? So, yes, I did go to Salem State. I wasn't automatically on the team. I, I um, worked my tail off, made the team, and, and uh, ended up playing for two years before I blew my knee out. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said that you weren't um, you weren't emotionally prepared for college. No. Right before I uh, went to college, I, I read about it in a book. I, my, one of my best friends um, is uh, I drowned in a pool, and it was my best friend had come to Salem to get my apartment with me. And he goes, "Oh, I'll be out of fun coming to visit you." He was going to play football in college, and um, two weeks later, he had drowned in, in a pool in my street. I was devastated, Jim, and, and I couldn't wait to get out of my house, be with my friends, because I had a bunch of Hyde Park guys going to Salem right. State with me, and I was not ready. I was 17 years old, yeah. in college, and uh, no, I wasn't ready, And uh, but I needed to get out of the house, and I had baseball, and um, I wish they had made me study more and make me accountable for my bad grades, and yeah, I, I, I said, high school. oh, high school, I was fine, I was top 10%, no, college, I mean. And um, okay. in high school, I was fine. I was right up there with you and Sully. <laughs> but uh, right. but uh, Salem, nope. It was um, it was a big party, and uh, meeting new people, playing uh, intramural sports, playing baseball when I made the team, and nothing else mattered to me about just playing baseball. And uh, I had a nickname my friend gave me, Bob Mazzoni. He's from Tech, and uh, he he wised off to me once. He goes. He goes, you, you won't even get to the library. He goes, you can hit a baseball, but you can't pick up a book. And he goes, your nickname is Kume. And a shot for cumulative average. Kume. Like cumulative? cumulative? Yeah, because mine was an 09. It's about the same as my blood alcohol content at the time, Jim, to tell you the truth. Yeah. All right. Uh, so um, you went to college. In, Adi died when you were in college. Is that correct? Or no? Oh, no, no. Adi... Um, he didn't die till uh, 2020. 
when I went to college, I, I got out of college and I'm finishing it, uh, go, going to Boston State my senior okay. year and finishing up when I got the police job up here in 1979. All right. Okay. All right. Um, anything else that I didn't ask that you think we should talk? We don't tell, tell everybody the story that we want them to get online. And I, I got a Kindle edition. They could also buy Kindles or the hard copy. The Kindle just went down. I, I asked the uh, publisher to lower the price for me. And, um, the and, and they did. The, the Kindle one price went down to $13.95. Yeah. And I'm trying to get the, um, the cover, the, the cover of the book, the actual. But yeah. um, the publisher won't budge, and I signed the contract. And that's my mistake. Okay. Ronald Welliver. The author of First Bruno, Now This, a intimate look into his life story with his parents and his brother growing up in the Hyde Park section of, of Boston in the 60s, 70s, and all the way up through the mid-19, uh, 2022. Oh, past the 2020, yes. All right. But all right. And, and if you do read this book, if people that know me hear my voice, I'm not sure if you heard my voice, Jim, while you were reading it. Like I told you, I recognize somebody in one of your pictures. Yep, and um, but most people, you laugh, you'll cry, and you'll hear my voice when you read the book. You go, ooh, shrug your shoulders. Okay, Ronnie Welliver, good to see you, and I'll probably be seeing you before sooner rather than later. I hope so, Jim. Thank you very much. Okay, talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Pink Door Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.